Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. Establishing an outpost on another world is no easy task, but growing it into a thriving new colony may turn out to be even harder. We've often looked at space colonization but usually from the standpoint of getting our ships and colonists there, the raw nuts and bolts of setting up a colony, or the life of the crew in getting there, but rarely the time after landing or the lives of those colonists once there. A couple weeks back we started correcting that by taking a look at life as a space colonist, and I thought we would continue that today by asking what happens as a newly founded outpost or colony grows to be a real city. That's a fairly critical notion too, grows to be a city, because whether we're talking about a small outpost on a small asteroid growing into a large O'Neill cylinder, or one small domed base on a vast new planet, a critical part of becoming a true civilization is going to be the rise of that first true city. Whether that remains a small provincial town of a few thousand, or grows to be megalopolises, megacities sprawling over huge areas housing billions, it seems almost inevitable that a growing colony will have some first city, even if that city is some sort of virtual war designated for remote gatherings. How it would arise depends a lot on the nature and purpose of a colony, and I thought we'd walk through a trio of examples today. So we're going to be following the growth of a base on Mars, an asteroid mining outpost, and an interstellar colony through several generations. One of the first things to keep in mind on any colony or outpost is asking why the place exists, and the second is to ask why people are coming there. It's a very different scenario for each of our three examples. Early Mars colonists are going to be there because there's a chance to be the first folks on another world, and the colony probably doesn't have to be very independent and self-sufficient in those early days. Alternatively, your typical asteroid mine, other than the first trial cases prototypes, is likely to be all about the raw economic motivations initially. Something similar applies to interstellar colonies. The first handful might be prestige projects by nations or groups proving it can be done, but that only holds interest for maybe a dozen interstellar colonies, and there's hundreds of billions of stars in this galaxy. They're not getting settled as prototypes, tests, or the honor of being able to say it was the first interstellar colony or runner up by some nation that wants to prove it can do it too. It's also not likely to be for economic gain. That might be a factor in things but interstellar trade, while possible as we looked at in our recent episode on the topic, is the sort of investment that takes a very long time to pay off. This means that your typical interstellar colony is motivated by something other than commercial gains back home. However, that doesn't mean they're not interested in commerce. There's obviously vast wealth in a new solar system and being the one to set up a major commodity trade or trade lane or stock market is obviously a big deal. I don't think most folks know who Edward Jones or Charles Dow are, but everybody knows the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and given light-like issues, every new star system is going to need their own local markets. This is a fairly critical concept to establishing distant new colonies, often there is likely to be a group, ideological, political, or religious pushing the founding of a new colony in terms of gathering the people, funds, and supplies, but there will be people motivated to be the first person to set up that new solo market, or grow the first orchard on a new world or climb its tallest mountain. 
They probably will be a member of the group pushing that colony effort, or comfortably aligned to it, and it may simply be a secondary goal, but that goal will still exist. Whatever group is pushing the interstellar colony is likely to have an idea of what they consider the perfect new world in terms of setup and lifestyle, but ultimately they are cloning Earth, just with some mutations specific either to their beliefs or the system or planet's specific nature. If the planet is so eroded and tectonically dead that it has no mountains, it obviously isn't going to attract people seeking to climb them or breed up folks dreaming of doing so. We could argue something much the same will ultimately apply down the road to purely commercial ventures like an asteroid mine. A critical aspect of asteroid mining is that it's not a short process. Hypothetically we might take smaller asteroids, those the size of trucks or ships, and drag them back someplace for refining. Indeed hypothetically we might tear apart even the largest with an array of automated miners, ranging from ship size down to microscopic. But in general an asteroid mining base on something the size of a mountain represents a generational supply. You want to sell its stock as fast as you can while getting a good price of course, but there is a bit of a problem, you need a customer. A given cubic kilometer of an asteroid contains anywhere between maybe a hundred million tons of metal to low billions, depending on its makeup. There is over a million asteroids that big or bigger in the solar system, and each one represents something akin to our entire planetary production of metal in a given year, so there's a glut of metals once asteroid mining takes off. One can imagine various trade treaties limiting production of any specific place off some interplanetary annual quota of demand to encourage the settlement and acquisition of these objects. Keen that to worries about over-automation and folks having little to do, I could see a scenario where regulations or tax incentives were set up to encourage more folks to be at a colony. If for instance there was a production quota and the allotment to a mining colony was tied to their total population, or alternatively if they received tax incentive for how many colonists they had, rather than employees specifically. Either of those represents a scenario where the company owning or leasing the asteroid has a reason to encourage migration. Even ignoring that though, once you have a colony set up focused on mining or some other business, the folks living there will want a better standard of living, which will mean other jobs for unrelated businesses like recreation, agriculture, and so on. Plus there will be a desire to expand to value-added products, meaning you don't just ship out big ingots of iron, but instead send out prefabricated steel sheets to be used in orbital habitat construction. The growth is the kind we see in many commercial colony efforts in our own past that focused on a specific commodity, such as tobacco, sugar, cotton, and so on. We arguably see it less with commodities that amount more to fuel, like coal mining towns or oil rigs, as there's no value-added product. And so we might see a parallel with an outpost or colony dedicated to tending huge solar panel arrays to transmit power via microwave transmission to other settlements. The crew size would obviously depend on their degree of automation, and that crew will still want various luxuries that need to be locally supplied, though that might be very limited. A solar farm handling a million square kilometers of panel might only need a crew of a dozen and they might have mostly digital luxuries like virtual reality while getting luxury items when a tender vessel came by to drop off replacement equipment for the solar farm and rotate crew. But even then I suspect not. If you're stuck for year-long contracts on a solar farm, you might decide your hobby is to use bits of damaged solar gear to assemble a little hydroponic farm and grow a garden. Some of the other crew might decide they'd prefer that fresh produce or maybe some fresh flowers and trade you the occasional workshift for some of that supply. Someone else might make a still to turn some of your extra produce into alcohol and set up a bar that's open for an hour or two each evening. 
Now it's entirely possible that Tendoship has its own automated hydroponics lab so it carries plenty of coffee or alcohol for the crew, but the critical notion is that once people are there, an ecosystem, in both the ecological and economic senses, has been established and will begin producing niches. Some of those niches are likely to be strictly local or easier or better supplied locally. Growth in both raw numbers and in diversification specialization will vary a bit but should generally be on the rise over long enough times, unless some place nearby is simply far more attractive for growth. What began as a mining colony for gold on some small metallic asteroids slowly shifts to other metals as those get exhausted and slowly grow in numbers as wealth of the place provides attractions for immigration and for raising a family there if you work there. A few centuries later, it might still be mining as much or more than it was at the beginning, but it's no longer the main form of employment on that asteroid. So too, a solar panel farm putting out a terawatt of power to energy-hungry distant settlements, or running a giant laser array for pushing spaceships has the energy, or money, to support a very comfortable existence for thousands, and it probably doesn't matter much if it only needs a fraction of that number to run the place. Even if we assume there's not much economy or money in the future, there still would be a tendency to shift to local production where you could as more efficient and requiring fewer steps that might waste some material like fuel or even just time. Interstellar colonies are a bit backwards, the only attraction to it is the opportunity for growth, and that is what it is selling to prospective colonists, either those on the first colonial ship or fleet or its follow-ups. The colony can offer huge long-term prospects. If it is a solar system like our own, it can offer the first million settlers massive land deals like their own medium-sized asteroid or a parcel of land on one of its planets the size of a small state. But the payoff is a long way off, even ignoring travel time to get there, because it is all worthless until the overall colony has grown to the point it actually has some use for the materials or that land. Even if you could get a parcel of land a thousand square kilometers in size, you could grow grain on, Even if you got a metallic asteroid with a million tons of gold in it, without some market for it, it doesn't really have a value. You can't eat gold or really build anything out of it. You can eat a thousand square kilometers of grain, but so can a few million other people, and if you haven't got that many people, it's fairly useless. So is ten billion tons of steel. However, that you might be able to get rid of because it's about the amount needed to build an O'Neill Cylinder or the kind of generational arc ship that a million folks might reside in. What you're essentially manufacturing at these places then is people, their environments, and the new communities with their own internal governance and commerce. It's just that the supply chain is rather long and complex. I suspect that's part of why the feudal model is so popular in science fiction. The big attraction to someone with the funds to be founding or assisting in the founding of a colony is that they, or a distant descendant, will be getting a huge opportunity to be a major player in a future realm. As we mentioned a couple weeks back, that even applies to someone who basically could only pay for their own passage there, because everyone is in a position to benefit from long-term, slow, but exponential growth, if that is something which appeals to them, and for that reason we would expect a mindset that favors that to be disproportionately common in the colonists. Taking that into account, how does this work at the more local level, in an outpost turning into a city? Well, cities tend to arise for a variety of reasons, but a common one is sitting on a major commercial route, whether in terms of overt trade or being just down the mountain from the big mine. Outposts arise for similar reasons, and even military frontier outposts that usually were situated with strategic reasons in mind include that commerce aspect as one of the strategic reasons. Your outpost is guarding the river everyone tends to go up and down on, for instance. 
Now, barring aliens, we really shouldn't need many frontier military outposts because they wouldn't be the frontier to guard, as such places were usually only guarding a frontier for their civilization, and specifically from people who did not regard it as their frontier but their tribal clan's backyard for many generations. So what is the natural trade hub of a new planet? Well by default, we tend to assume it is where the shuttles all came down from that big colony ship and the landing pad, but shuttles can land wherever and it's not very likely you'll feel like dumping all your cargo on the ground in one spot then paying the fuel bill to run it around that planet. You're also not going in blind or quick, even if there weren't already detailed studies of the planet or flybys before you ever left Earth, and there probably would be, you'd have months of advanced probes launched from your own ship. Indeed as we've discussed before, planetary colonization is likely to be a reverse process of our expansion to space from our own planet. You probably spent out dozens of smaller ships to establish outposts on various promising moons and asteroids as you headed into the system, to your Goldilocks Zone planet if it has one, and after making orbit, you probably deployed a satellite grid before any shuttle headed down to the surface. I would say it's entirely possible you spent months in orbit before doing that, but I suspect it would be considered a big deal to that first shuttle with the Colonial Governor, Notables, and Flag Down to plant in the dirt of that Virgin Ward, and of course a camera crew. There's a decent possibility that your colonists came in some form of stasis, in which case you don't have to wake up most of them until after you've got some place to put them, and while everyone might have massive land stakes already proportioned or allotted or awaiting selection or lottery, those are those long-term investments. Right now, you've got your initial setup and that isn't likely to call for spreading people evenly all over the world, but probably several key outposts and one central site. It also is not necessarily likely that the central hub is actually planet-side. You're going to want an orbital space station and quite a big one, and your ship you came on might simply be altered to that form or just in one of its rotating habitat modules to serve in that role. So the planetary capital, which we'd expect by default to be the largest settlement or outpost, might actually be up in space. For that matter on those worlds where the focus is on mining, it might be on top of the tallest mountain. Olympus Mons on Mars, twice as tall as anything we've got on Earth, is a very gently sloping mountain and ideal for something like a mass driver system. Your initial main settlement then might sprawl over a thin stretch of a thousand kilometers from that mountaintop launch point down the length of that mass driver, which might also serve as a runway for inbound ships, not the driver itself but the probably mostly flattened ground around it where you built it. That might resemble our earliest civilizations built along major rivers such as Egypt, which we nowadays picture as a big blocky nation in Northeast Africa, but for most of its history was a civilization a thousand kilometers long but only ten kilometers wide. Alternatively for those worlds where gravity, rotational rate, and technology permit use of space elevators then you probably do have that big central landing site and on some piece of the equator, and your first main outpost going to be a city is effectively one tens of thousands of kilometers long, with stations at the top and bottom and possibly midway points. Of course that might not be a top in space either, our own moon is tidally locked to Earth, as are most moons their parent planet, but Pluto and its moon Charon are both locked to each other, effectively double dwarf planets, and that might be decently common in the Universe. Indeed dwarf planets doubtless vastly outnumber Earth-sized ones. You can run a space elevator right between a spot on each of them, as we looked at with the Acheron River in our episode Colonizing Pluto. Critical notion there too, you aren't likely to ever colonize just one spot on one planet or even just one planet, 
A plan for a solar economy, modeled after whatever develops in our own solar system, is likely to have been on the drawing board before your ship ever gets that new system. Now we've been talking about interstellar colonies and asteroid mines, but let's shift a bit to Mars to note both how it's unique and why it's not likely to be the model we use elsewhere. First off, Mars has vast resources, and possibly high enough gravity to live comfortably in, we don't know yet, but the problem with those resources is that they are vast, and thus generate a big gravity well. Uh, Let's be clear on this, the only valuable asset Mars has for any application off Mars is water ice and maybe some nitrogen, and even then only for its possible use as a fuel to get to orbit or air and water for Martian orbital outposts. Mars has tons of minerals, far more than the entire asteroid belt combined, far more than the Jovian moons and its Trojan asteroids combined. But until those are all used up, they represent cheaper sources of raw materials for the solar system. What's more, Mars has a pair of tiny moons that aren't that tiny. Deimos masses 2 trillion tons and Phobos 10 trillion. They may well have water ice in them, but they are going to have carbon and metals, and while we don't know the actual ratios and types at this time, either one is very likely to be able to provide enough building material for hundreds of massive orbital settlements. So early on you are probably building much of your Martian orbital infrastructure right into those two moons and using them to supply the rest, not grabbing it from Mars, though you might do that too. Mars has weaker gravity than Earth and no real atmosphere, so if you got good power generation you could run a dedicated mass driver, and while the energy needs would be higher than getting them from the Martian moons, we never want to assume watts or joules directly correlates to nickels and dimes. In any event, Mars offers little to the solar economy except as an unexceptional and inconvenient source of raw materials, and possibly as a major importer, assuming it has money to do so. That might not matter much though because it has two things going for it, we really want to settle it, and it's probably relatively easy to settle and make self-sustaining. Getting people to Mars is far cheaper and faster than anything interstellar, and most of the other places of note in our solar system too. Spending months on a spaceship to get there on the cheap is not very attractive, even compared to old transatlantic colonial ships, but we do have the advantage that it need not be too cramped. Space is cheap in space, as there is so much of it, and the Aldrin Cyclo Castle design we discussed in our Mars Base episode is ideal as a long, slow, but cheap transportation method. You can cram folks into the shuttle entering or leaving the Cyclo from Earth and Mars orbits, but you only have paid the fuel bill to put a cyclo in play one time, so you can make them pretty hefty and lavish if you like, unlike most modern or historic forms of long distance transport. Think of a cyclo castle as more of a place where you rent an apartment for a year, then cram into a cramped passenger cabin or sleeper car. There's actually a fuel saving per person to building big that way too, since the main requirement is shielding mass and the square cube law helps us out. A cyclocastle twice as big in all dimensions needs two square or four times the shielding, but has two cubed or eight times the volume, and one ten times bigger has a thousand times the space for a hundred times the shielding mass. More space still costs more, but it's not linear, so you can offer people fairly comfortable travel accommodations for the trip, except maybe a day or two of cramped shuttles on each end of the trip. Those cyclocastles could easily be cities unto themselves with their own economies, and people move there and possibly migrate off to Earth or Mars when passing them. That makes migration a good deal more attractive, and Mars is a place where you can really walk around in the open air. You need a suit, but hardly a super thick one and rapid in-situ manufacture of pressurized domes to add living space shouldn't be hard for the early base to accomplish. 
so Mars has the ability to grow by the millions via migration in a relatively short time interval, so long as you have the funds and means for transporting people and a volunteer pool, which is one reason why nicely appointed and spacious cyclocastles is a decent likelihood even if it costs more, because it makes folks a little more okay with making the trip. Space will not be at a premium on Mars. That will be a big selling point to future colonists when we start running low on folks willing to go there just because of the desire to try out a new planet for novelty value, or prestige, and I tend to assume folks who are attracted to that notion would be even less likely than most people to enjoy being crammed in. Such being the case though, it does make you wonder if you would get very many cities, probably not early on, after the initial base and outpost stage as frontier-oriented pioneers probably want to live on the frontier, not the big base city starport, but within a generation or two you would expect folks who prefer that to start being born too, and then your usual city dynamic of allowing vast diversification of specialist jobs and lifestyles to kick in and cause some urbanization. That is likely to also apply to interstellar colonies, where they land somewhere, in one or a handful of outposts, then ooze out to the frontier, then creep back into the cities, though might be faster there since the passengers of the interstellar colony ship are not staying in stasis, what you instead have is a generation ship, and the folks who arrive at the new world will have been born inside a world that's relatively tight, the habitation drum of their spaceship, and might strongly prefer cities or even space stations. I mentioned earlier that the big central planetary capital of new colonies might tend to be in orbit, not groundside. And that might be doubly true if a lot of the colonists born on the trip already have a natural preference for living in a rotating habitat. That's a funny thing about colonizing the galaxy and heading out to new worlds, many of those who arrive might prefer living in orbit of them, not on them. We always say our future is in space, for most folks that might turn out to be rather literal. Winter is coming and if you're looking for some good entertaining and educating videos to watch during the cold, for yourselves or your friends or family, you can find SFIA and many other great shows over on Nebula, our streaming service, which was recently nominated for the Streaming Award. We show all our new episodes there a couple days early and without ads. If you'd like to catch SFIA episodes early and without ads and help support the show while you're doing it, you can sign up for Nebula today and also see our exclusive Coexistence with Aliens series along with other great content from our sibling shows. However, we also have a deal running with CuriosityStream where if you sign up for them at the link in the episode description, you not only get a 26% discount but free access to Nebula while you're a CuriosityStream subscriber. CuriosityStream has excellent educational content of their own, like their Force to the Moon series chronicling the race to space to the moon landing, the place that will likely be the site of our first space outpost, and maybe our first off-Earth city. That's just one of many fun and educational videos CuriosityStream offers, and they are running a 26% discount if you use the link in the episode description. CuriosityStream has excellent educational content of their own, and they are running a 26% discount if you use the link in the description. That's a great deal since it means you get a year of both CuriosityStream and Nebula for less than $15, and helps support this show and a lot of other educational content which is what CuriosityStream and Nebula are all about, and again you can get a year of both for less than $15 by using a link in the episode's description. So today we were looking at space colonies growing on new worlds, and this weekend we'll look at how we'll terraform those new worlds. 
Then we'll ask how we go about getting to them in interstellar navigation, how we go about building our own solar system up into a Kardashev II civilization, and finally, we wrap the year up on December 31st with becoming an interplanetary species. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel. And if you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link to the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.